Welcome to the Circuit Clouds podcast, the official podcast of United League Baseball, purveyors of fine fake baseball since 1951. The baseball is fake, but the podcast is real. And tonight, finally, the long-awaited Finances 101 episode. We have with us two playoff GMs and one dynasty, former dynasty GM. We have uh, from St. Louis Maroons GM, Glenn Reed. Hello, Glenn. Yo, yo. And we have uh, West Division champion, uh, Los Angeles Outlaws GM, Peter Vase. Hey, Peter. Greetings from the penthouse. <laughs> and finally, we have from the Manhattan Gray Sox, uh, legendary GM, Eric Holthouse. Good evening, Eric. How's it going? Good. Thank you. So we've been promising this episode or this topic for, I can't remember how many, it's been five or six episodes. So we finally figured, you know what, let's do it. Especially the timing with expansion coming up. We've got three new GMs in the league. We have got a set, probably at least two or three other GMs who are fairly new. So we figured this would be a good opportunity to kind of go over some tips and tricks on how to managing, how to manage the finances of the league. Um, so we're, we have a few kind of thematic topics that we'll touch on. We'll start off with some general tips and then we'll go into the salary cap. We'll talk about revenue. Um, we'll have some thoughts on player valuation and then that'll lead us into a discussion of contracts. So without further ado, with I thought a good starting point would be to discuss the payroll cap that the league has and in particular the formula for how, how the payroll cap is determined because it, it struck me that knowing how the payroll cap works. That's basically what it sets your budget. So knowing how that works and knowing how to act, maximize that is really the first the first tip that we'll talk about. So what is the payroll cap formula? It's pretty simple. There's three parts to it. The first one is total revenues, the average of your last three years. The second part is your cash balance. And then there's and then there's a five million dollars that's added to it. So there's really two, there's really only two variables. It's your revenue and your cash balance. So those are the th- the two parts that you really need to pay attention to to maximize the cap. So before we get started, I thought we would have a quick round of just general tips and like maybe we'll go around and each of us will mention like one thing that we think like what the most important thing or if you could summarize the most important financial strategy in one or two sentences and then we'll go into the the more the more specific topics. Well, can I bust in with something right now yep. which I don't yep. I don't think so you far. mentioned is that yes, yeah, it's, it's revenue plus cash but cash is capped, right? There's a limit on the amount of cash you can carry yep. at 8 million. And there's also a limit on the downside, which has some important implications that I'm sure we'll discuss later. Yep. Yep, for sure. that yes. It's like, you can get into, you can do a lot of things with that, but, um, but yeah, but it's capped at 8 million, right? So, yep. so every dollar above eight is there that you, you know, you're in excess of 8 million is, mm-hmm. is wasted. Right. So, yeah, exactly. So, so that's a important consideration that we should mention right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I don't have, we don't have cash as a topic, but I figure it's, we can discuss it in this, in the salary cap conversation. Would anyone like to volunteer with a first, like a general tip? I wanted to volunteer Pete, but he said he didn't know the cap was. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I can start. I mean, for a general tip, I think especially for long-term financial management is ensure that you can get value out of the late rounds of the draft. So even if you're at the 75 million cap at 50 players, which you're required to have 50 players, which is important for the new GMs to to know as well, you can average one and a half million dollars per player. A first rounder makes more than that. So you can't have 50 first rounders on your roster. 
So I think for for long-term financial strategy, one of my big pointers has always been try to get value out of the late rounds. I think you'll see a number of the, the teams that were good for a long time often were dealing their first rounders for proven talent so that any guy you know, on their roster who was making a decent chunk of, of money, like $2 million and up, was actually contributing and not just you know, sitting in the minors. Yeah, I have a problem with that right now. <laughs> um, <clears throat> like half of my team is, is prospects and I'm paying, I think I have like 18 guys making 2 million or more right now, but almost all of them are prospects. So I just don't have the horses on the field that the, that the, the, uh, what's it called? The, the, uh, payroll would indicate. So I'm in that really difficult phase right now where I'm going to start trading away some of those guys those $2 million uh, prospects for some proven guys. And I feel like if we didn't have to pay our prospects, um, this is like not a typical league in that sense that usually once the guy hits the majors, they start uh, earning a salary. But in this league, you have to pay all of your, all of your guys. And so you have to, you have to keep your rebuilds short for that reason. You can't drag it on or else you're going to bleed out all, all of your cash. Plus, dude, I was going to say, that's actually um, what Pete alluded to was one of your classic moves, Eric, was where you would trade draft picks at $2 million draft slots or $2 million salary slots for developed guys making less, right? That was one of your, like, I would say, to me, that was one of the most genius things you would consistently do that I would see you do. So I don't know if people will continually fall for that, but but I, but I mean, it, but it works because like they need to get younger or somehow you know, monetize their guy or turn their guy into some sort of value. So, so it makes sense. But, um, but that was like a great move. I think that you did consistently, right? Yeah. I want to jump in here. I'll say, I'm going to quote, I think this is something that that Glenn has said before that, that this league is more, we kind of jokingly call it, it's a baseball themed financial simulation rather than a baseball simulation. So, and this explains why, if you look at some teams that have the teams that have like the success, the successful kind of turnaround stories of recent years. And I'm thinking specifically of both Detroit and Seattle, and there may be others. Well, obviously St. Louis, but and um, Montreal and Montreal. Right. Exactly. So basically kind of the last three guest GMs we had on, on the podcast, the common theme of all those, all three of those teams have kind of gone about it in different ways. But if there's a, one theme they had in common is, is like when we interviewed them, we said, Hey, how, you know, how did you turn this team around? You're in last place for years. And all three of them to, to a person said, oh, I finally figured out the finances. I got my financial house in order and that allowed them to make the moves that they needed to be successful. So I would say that as a general tip is like, it really is kind of foundational to success. And only the common theme of successful teams is that they've figured out the finances and they've managed to put a competitive team on the field while still being profitable. But, but the new, new GMs don't have to fret. There are teams that win that never figure out the finances. <laughs> LA is a great example. <laughs> I still haven't figured out finance. I just spend. I spend and then I try to make the playoffs to make the money back. And that's it. I haven't yeah. figured out how to actually run the finances correctly. No, you're like, this was me uh, before we had the, the war and recession or whatever it is that happened uh, where everyone... Everyone, and by everyone, I mean me, lost about 15 or $20 million of, of revenue, um, which is hard when that's like a quarter of your <laughs> payroll. But um, I, yeah, I would just, 
I would spend and then I would cut guys that weren't performing or that were on uh, uh, huge contracts. And then I would just spend more to, <laughs> because that would free up cap space. Uh, and this year, I'm very thankful. This year is the last year of some of those legacy contracts that I cut. Uh, I don't even remember the guys that I cut, but I still have almost $8 million on the books this, this year because of those old bad contracts. And so, <clears throat> yeah, I can't do that anymore. Um, my, re- my revenue right now is only, I think, $65 million. But your, your point, Peter, is really important that once you're a perennial payoff, t- playoff team, that's an extra somewhere between like three to $6 million a year that you're getting from playoff revenue. That's huge. And um, if you're a big market team, that really helps you to just ignore all the finances. That's what I did for a long time. Yeah, it's funny. Actually, so we know what's funny about this conversation is here we have LA and Manhattan, like the two, two biggest market teams, essentially. <laughs> Giving financial then, advice to the right, right, right. Dudes who don't even care. They're like, don't even worry about it. Bucks. It's fine. Exactly. <laughs> this reminds me Wait, of in that. Montreal. In Montreal, yeah. you can't figure out the finances. Yeah, we look at LA and Manhattan. Yeah, I think we got the wrong guys on the call. So I have one more general tip, and then we'll go into more of the topics. Um, it's it's kind of like the maxim, and this is a case of do what I say, not what I do, because I, I clearly don't belong in this conversation, at least <laughs> not based on uh, Denver's current performance. But one of the things I like to say is don't lose both games and money. Um, so in other words, if you're, uh, it's okay to run a deficit if you're a successful, because as Eric just said, you can recoup some of that money over the, over the long term if you make the playoffs. And also, um, you know, you're putting butts in seats. But if, you're, if your team is, uh, if you're running a deficit and your team starts slumping and they start losing games, that's when red lights just start going off. And the first thing, faster to fix the finances first than the quality of the team, right? You can, you can cut some high cost players, maybe, you know, deal them for uh, cheaper players or, or, or future draft picks or something like that. But um, in general, if you start losing games, make sure that you're at least profitable because otherwise, and this is like uh, something that Sean has mentioned, if, if you start losing games and money at the same time and you do that for two or three years, you, you end up in this death spiral of just getting worse and worse. Your payroll cap will shrink to get smaller and smaller. Um, there is a limit on that. It can only change by five million a year. But if you have three years to row that, you're suddenly down at like 60 million when the rest of the league is competing at 75. So um, that's my big thing is don't lose both games and money at the same time. Eric, you, you've been the master of buying out contracts. You've done that more than any other GM. But I think that was a function of, of because you had excess money. It's like, okay, what am I going to do with extra money? Well, I might as well spend it on something useful. Yeah, it was the thing that Glenn mentioned right at the beginning of of the show that was like any cash you have above the the now it's eight million dollar cap is wasted. So I'm uh, you know, I'm I was bringing in revenues of some some years I was bringing in revenues of over a hundred million dollars in ticket sales and media and all that stuff. So um, and I know that my sal- the salary cap is 75, so I could cut, you know, sometimes $20 million of, of contracts without being penalized for it at all. You know, that, that cash just comes straight out, goes to play, pay those players. And so I effectively ran like a $90 million cap for a few years. 
coincidentally <laughs> uh, coincides with the years of the dynasty. Also, just for our newer GMs, you'll notice that the um, the media contracts are not, there, there isn't, the finances in this league aren't completely, it's not all 14 or 16 teams have the exact same the media contracts in particular, the bigger markets have slightly bigger ones, but that disparity used to be much greater and it's kind of like shrunk now. So it's only a few million difference between the teams. And so, um, and that was a way of a compromise of like, okay, there should be uh, that, you know, we, we want to aim for some parity in the league, but also in real life, there are big, large markets and small markets. So we wanted to keep some element of that in the league as well. All right. Shall we move on to our first topic then, which is, the salary cap, and we've already talked, you know, obviously we've talked a little bit about this, but um, we have, we want to go around if people have general tips on how to manage the salary cap, how to maximize the salary cap, and then maybe how to use the salary cap. Like I said, dude, I, I feel like we need we need Joe or or Sean to be like, oh, here's how you win on 50 million, you know? Oh, so, but if the question is, how do you maximize it? Well, it goes back to your 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 formula, right? Like, so cash is king because it adds directly to your cap, right? If, if your, your formula is revenue plus 5 million plus cash, then, then cash adds directly. And, and similarly, negative cash subtracts directly from the total. So you do not, you do not want to be in a negative cash situation, right? So get your cash to 8 million. And, but not a penny above, right? Get your cash to exactly $8 million. And then step two, maximize revenue, right? So that, I mean, that's like super, in a way, super simple. But I mean, I think that's what you, that's what you got to be trying to do every single year with respect to maximizing the cap, right? Yeah, there's, a, there's ways to, you know, tweak ticket sales to where you can um, figure out, you know, I, I go down to like uh, 10 cent level sometimes to try to figure out where where is the maximum number of um, maximum estimated total revenue i don't really care about per game or attendance even i want to care i care about ticket prices times attendance so you can tweak uh you know higher prices will result in lower attendance so um you just play around with it until you can find a plateau and just try to stay there throughout the season yeah, the, the ticket prices was one thing I played with. I also do make a concentrated effort to try to get players that are popular. Yep. Um, I don't know how much it drives the revenue, but it is something I do. And I'd say for newer GMs, it, I think a cheap way to get popular players is during free agency. You know, that 25th guy on the roster that's going to pinch hit and have 50 at-bats. Mm-hmm. If you can find some old dude that's popular because he used to be good, that's mm-hmm. not a bad pickup you know, at a minimum salary, you might bring in more in ticket sales than you're, than you're paying him. Um, you know, outside of that, obviously, a lot of the stars around the league are popular. Um, but you'll find some mediocre players that for whatever reason, happen to be popular players. So that's something I keep an eye out for as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember I specific, I signed Willie, Willie McCovey. Um, this is probably back 75 or 76. But specifically for that reason, he wasn't good anymore. But he was, I think he was extremely popular. What are those? Like, there's like five levels of popularity, something like that. Um, and he came in and, you know, he had like, like you said, 40 or 50 at-bats, but instant boost to the, to the fan interest. So I do have some, uh, I solicited some tips from across the league. 
So here's some uh, other tips that came in on the salary cap. Um, I think Tim Widholm said this, keep some cap space open for extensions, but particularly if, if you've got um, some young young stars on your team and, you're, and you want to do extensions on them, uh, allow some space for that. Um, Sean's tip, be ruthless in cutting players, letting them go. Yeah. And I think this is a particularly useful one for those kind of like smaller market teams or teams that are trying to you know, move from red ink to black ink. Just if, if a player's borderline quality, but they're $2 million, basically just let them lose. Here's one, buying out contracts. Uh, Eric's already talked about that. And if I could follow up on one thing. So uh, Brooklyn Tim said, make sure you have cap space left over for extensions. But I would say, make sure you have cap space left over for trades. Now, like, again, Pete's going to say, like, what? I never leave any room. <laughs> but I remember during the uh, Boston, Manhattan, like, head-to-head thing oh, every yeah. year. Like, that was always like, a problem. <laughs> who can, <laughs> I, cut? Who can right. I cut that won't totally kill yeah. my team so I can get this? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So we had that problem, like, every year. So, So I would end up, like, intentionally underspending so I could, cause I knew I was going to need to make a trade at right. some point during the year. So, so yeah. So there's, there's, there's some wisdom in that. This is a little bit easier now though, because uh, there's no maximum number of players. Uh, there used to be a 55 player maximum on your roster. And now that that is gone, I can, I can keep some of those, scrubs on the team for that very reason uh of like i'll cut these scrub i i don't i don't really want to cut these guys but i will if i'm gonna if i'm gonna make the trade so it's like the baseball equivalent of cannon fodder those those are the dudes in the front line and you're like right exactly we need we need five fewer people okay right (laughs) guys are gone that's true i mean so dude that's a good point because so how i think of it is like i always think of it in terms of uh slots and again like you said the rules have changed but in the past it was 50 to 55 so and and i think someone else said it's not as simple as you know 75 million divide by 55 and whatever that mm-hmm. number is because because the way the contracts are structured and i'm sure we'll get to this at some point the way the contracts are structured you have like 2 million 1 million you know 750 and then you have a bunch of guys at 350 what are the rules now for minimum and maximum players? Is there still a 50 player minimum? Yes, there is a 50 player minimum. Yeah. I was, I was going to jump in here and because Eric, okay, yeah. So maybe Eric, you do that. Now. Yeah. So Eric, yeah, yeah. Eric alluded to that rule change. There was at one point we had, uh, you had to have 50, at least 50, but no more than 55 players. The reason we did that was uh, at that time, there just weren't enough players to go around. And then we wanted to, to kind of stock the the double A level. Well, now we have like 10 teams in double A. Um, so there's, there is a surplus of players and it really, it, it, it didn't make sense to keep that rule. It doesn't really help anyone to have say 58 players. It's, it's not like it's an unfair advantage that like San Francisco has 58 players instead of 55. Right, so, right. so it was one of those changes like, yeah, we don't really need this rule anymore. So, so we got rid of it. Okay. Okay. So, okay. So with respect to the minimum then, okay. So maybe that's a better way to say it. So with respect to the minimum, then let's just say I cut a $2 million guy uh, or I trade a $2 million guy, but I, but now that's number 49. That was my 50th guy. So now I'm at 49. So all I'm trying to communicate is that the savings are, are have to still be reduced by 350,000. So, so if I, if I cut a $2 million guy, right. It's my, my, my 50th guy, I cut him. 
but I have to replace him still to get to 50. And because there are no, there's no zero value contract. The lowest contract is 350. Yeah. So my, my real savings are 1.65, right. Versus. So, so let me, I think, I know, I think I know what you're saying. Let let me see if I can say it in a different way. Yeah. Help me out. Let's say, okay. So, so let's say you're going into FA and you have, you only have 40 players on your roster, right? So you have to sign 10 guys. But then let's say you have $5 million to sign those 10 guys. Yes. Well, thank you. So you actually have to buy, so you have to spend 350. You, you have to fill that. You have to fill your roster to 50 guys. So you have to budget for, okay. So you say nine, if you get nine guys at 350, that's what, like 3 million. So you only, only have 1 million left over for that 10th guy. So yes, dude, yeah, thank you. Better. So <laughs> <laughs> Cut out all the shit I said and use that. That's perfect, bro. Yeah. Speaking of 350 guys, though, uh, um, there is another little loophole uh, built into the game where oh, yes, yes. If, you, if you leave 350 guys in the minors, they only make 16.5% of their salary. So, like, what, whatever that is, like 50K or something like that. Um, so, you can save $300,000 of somebody's salary by just leaving them in the minors. Um, so I try to, if I'm deciding between two relief pitchers and one is on a minimum salary and one is making like 700 K I'll, I will always bring up the 700 K guy, no matter if he's even slightly worse because, uh, because I want to save that money. I didn't even know that. I, I don't even know. How <laughs> I, I, I didn't either. <laughs> Why am I here? <laughs> I had no clue that was even a thing. I just bring up the best guy. <laughs> yeah. So Eric pointed this out to me last night. I was like, what, where'd you find that? And he, and he, he took a screenshot, like right off of the finance tab. It's like right here at the bottom, it says, you know, if a guy's there's three fifty. So the, we've been so, playing this game for 18 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you haven't read the fine print. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think I, I feel like they've added that they might've added that in a recent version. Uh, that that's my excuse anyway. Um, so I think, so just to clarify how this works. So if most teams have a, a, a good half dozen or 10 guys on a minimum contracts, 350 K that are in the minors, as long as they're in the minors, they only make whatever that is a sixth of their salary. So um, I think that the way that comes out is your expenses at the end of the year will be slightly less than what your payroll is. Does that make sense? So I think in Eric's case, his payroll is like 71 million and that's just adding up their salaries, but it's his actual expenses might end up being like 68 or something yep. because of these. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so does that mean like an FA and free agency when I'm trying to be smart and I'm bidding 365 because I think someone's going to bid 350. I'm actually screwing myself. Yes. Cause the 350 is a lot more valuable. Uh, yeah, you're screwing yourself um, only if only if you plan on keeping the guy in the minors. Yes, yes, exactly. If you plan on playing him uh, on your roster, then then bid three sixty five. Yeah, exactly. So, dude, that's exactly. So that's right. I feel like that's another important one. Is so kind of like a so, rule five rule where it's yeah to play the play the guy. Yeah, I would have. Talk to Eric five years ago. I could have been paying Durker fifteen million instead of thirteen million. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you want to do is just get a couple more million here and there to to, to throw out to guys in in FA. Yeah, I, I'm going to make Durker the richest man ever to play in this league. <laughs>
whatever you got to do to win a World Series. <laughs> That's true. All right, so let's um, let's move on. So the the last uh, two topics we'll discuss are player valuation, and then we'll get into contracts. And these will obviously kind of meld into each other. But on the theme of player valuation, I'll start with a, a comment that Sean Holloway sent in. He said, using a real estate term here, knew, know the comps of guys that you draft, trade or draft for. Keep an eye on trades and contract extensions to learn the going rate, for example, for a quality starter or a utility infielder. This is something that Joe Lima mentioned. He says that Joe, Joe mentioned that he keeps an eye on trades just for that sole reason of kind of figuring out, okay, what's the value, you know, what is the, what is the starting second baseman worth? Um, you know, what is, what is a third round draft pick worth? The reason for that is pretty obvious is, is to avoid overpaying for players. Um, and that's, I think that's one of the thing, one of the things I've noticed with new, new GMs jump in, usually they jump in right before FA and they're excited and they're like, Don Wilson, 14 million or Joe Torrey, 14 million. Just a couple examples. Um, so. Are you referring to anyone specific? No, no. I'm re- well, yes, I'm referring to Don Wilson and Joe Torrey. That's- <laughs> <laughs> Only those two. Um, so, any other thoughts on so thoughts on player valuation, um, Eric? Do you have any like when when you think of the value of players? And by the way, in this category, player valuation, we should throw in. Um, draft pick valuation maybe that's a whole separate category but oh yeah and i remember you saying a while ago when we were talking about a trade that the fourth and fifth rounders have negative value for you and that yes with me a little bit because it's like yeah why why would you draft someone who you know you're just gonna cut uh who has has zero potential of making the bigs um Mm -hmm. i don't know i mean at the top of the last round i've always been able to find some some good you know like I'm all about defense now, apparently. So I like some, some good uh, one trick ponies, right. That could end up making the the big leagues that might've slipped through the cracks. So, you know, I, I love the top of the top of the last round because that gives you the best shot at the three uh, guys on 350 contracts. But yeah, you know, by the same, uh, by the same token, late first rounders are really almost universally a bad pick to have so I always again I'd always try to trade away my late first round picks because I don't think a relief pitcher is worth a relief pitcher that's only barely developed is worth two million dollars for four years to wait to see if he develops so um, I don't know who else you're going to get at the late first round you know another corner outfielder or a first baseman or something like that and yeah those guys are not really worth two million dollars unless they're a decent playable uh, middle of the lineup type guy on a average team, right? Like they're not going to be a superstar, but, but yeah, you know, I wouldn't really go above 2 million in free agency unless you know, the guy is going to be starting for you for sure. And I wouldn't really go above 5 million, honestly, in free agency in this, in this economic environment that we're in now for, for anyone, but, you know, a superstar. I'm, I'm, I don't really get into the bidding wars because I, I like to look for value instead of go for the top names and try to find um, starters 
that are fourth and fifth starters that could sneakily become like a second in your rotation uh, on on minimum contract or something like that. I, like, I, yeah, I think I'd, I'd do better looking for value rather than going after the big names. Uh, you, you just completely you just described my my entire strategy, which was I, I put my whole team around late first rounders. So that might explain uh, whatever my record was this year. <laughs> we just found, hey, you we just, just described, found the culprit. Yeah, you, you just described, uh, you know, without naming names, you just described uh, George Bell and Willie McGee, uh, hitters on like bad teams. Like, you know, that's, apparently that's my specialty now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I follow Eric's strategy as well. The, you know, the late first rounders, especially, hopefully you can get somebody that can play if not right away, a year out, right? That's where you don't want to take development risk if possible. You know, the best pick in the draft, if you're not going to get one or two, obviously, but for a team that's already, you know, not the worst in the league, is the first pick in the second round, right? That yep. guy's going to make what you're supposed to make at league average at one and a half mil, and he's going to be almost as good as whoever the last player in the first round was. Right. Um, you know, there's certain superstars you obviously can't afford to let them walk away. Mm-hmm. So, you know, every team's got a few at this point. So you're going to pay them whatever they want pretty much. Right. Um, where you negotiate as much as you can, but you have to pay them whatever they want. I mean, my key to success has been or you second get and third round. round. Yeah. Or, or you got to trade them, but yeah. But you know, if you want to keep a Dave Winfield for me, like I've, if Dave Winfield says that I want 10 million, I most likely either have to give him 10 million or find a way to trade him for equal value, which is going to be tough, especially if people know that's what he wants to make. You know, that mm-hmm. right away takes away a ton of his value. Uh, so I, I spent a lot of time trying to accrue third round picks and where I can second round picks to get some of these guys that aren't going to be making right. $2 million and up. Like third round has been really my sweet spot, right? Like right. current team, you know, Rosemont Stuper, my four or five starters are third rounders. Right. The seven K contracts are really good usually. Yeah. I, that, to me, those are the best. The fourth round, I haven't had that much luck with. So, I mean, I guess if you accumulate enough of them, somebody's going to pan out. But the third round guys typically end up being, a lot of them will end up being serviceable uh, major leaguers. I don't have a ton of superstars. I think Weiniger was my best third round pick ever. Yeah. But, you know, guys like Rosma, Stuper, I had Paxton, who I traded to Eric. Those were all third-round picks, and they're all, you know, three, four, five starting types. And then my lineup's got some of these second- and third-round guys, you know, Backman, Sosha. These are not, like, you know, top first-round picks. They're late second-round picks, and in some cases, early third-round picks. So I think those picks have a ton of value, especially you know, when I'm trading. I put a lot of value on those kind of picks. And with the current players, similar to looking at popularity, I do look at greed and loyalty. So mm-hmm. I'm trying not to invest heavily in superstars that on top of it are greedy and want to get paid at some point. Yeah. And so I just want to jump in here to clarify a term that, uh, that Pete just mentioned, develop, development risk. So we talk about development risk a lot, especially uh, around draft time. So just for the new GMs, when we talk about development risk, Essentially, what that means, it's the difference, it's the gap between a player's current ratings and their potential ratings. Certain players come in and they have amazing potential, 
but their current ratings are like two or three. And it's clear that it's going to take them three or four years or maybe even longer to develop. So that's another factor in a player evaluation. Again, if you're drafting a guy, I think Alan Trammell was in this category. Um, Cal Ripken was, I think. Yeah, I was going to say Ryan Sandberg and Cal and Cal mm-hmm. Ripken is a good example of one right. re- reached their potential and one didn't. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to player, player evaluation, basically you're placing a bet on this based, because they come in, all rookies, all first rounders come in at at least 2 million. So basically what you, when you draft a guy like that who has high development risk, you say, okay, I'm basically I'm going to accept overpaying this guy for at least two or three years, because I think eventually he's going to be underpaid, right? That's the, that's the bargain that you're striking there with long, with kind of a long-term. Yeah. And this was my other tip that I wanted to give was a good time for it is that when you have uh, a guy just a tick away from, from uh, his major league debut uh, and you are pretty confident that he's going to be a superstar, like Ryan Sandberg, for example, I signed him to the longest contract that I could. I mean, this is a strategy that that someone like um, uh, Detroit would never make. I think there are GMs that are that are averse to those long term contracts because they can bite you in the end if the guy tanks. But often these guys will sign for less than their than their rookie because they're be- they are being overpaid right now. You know, Ryan Sandberger is not worth three million dollars right now, um, but. Uh, he signed a long-term deal for like 2.8 or something like that. So I'm happy with that. Yeah, I think uh, Atlanta got Tony Gwynn uh, and Fernando Valenzuela, both on long-term contracts. Yeah. That were really good. Um, Mike Scott is another one. So yeah, there's definitely two types of, two, there's two approaches. There's, and, and I think you would both, so there's there's the Eric, I think Manhattan has been, that's been one of your, pat, you know, kind of your patented moves is like locking guys up for, six, seven years. And then the, at the opposite ex- extreme, you mentioned uh, Detroit, like Sean, but also Brooklyn. Brooklyn, he only has four guys signed beyond this year. So he's wow. really going year to year. Um, right. But I think if I, if you asked, you know, you guys opposite into the spectrum, but you're both, you, I think your both approaches are minimizing risk. You're right. just taking two different ways. Their argument is like, well, I don't want to sign anyone past this year because they could get hurt next week. And for, for a Manhattan type, it's like, well, I want to, I don't want to end up paying this guy 8 million when I can pay him 2 million now. Right. Well, yeah. C-Rob was the same way where uh, one, he started out on a 350 contract and then um, I went through a couple arbitration years with him and he ended up up to 6 million or 5.8 or something like that. And then I was like, I just got to lock this guy in because it's just going to keep escalating $2 million a year. And that's where that strategy kind of came from. Um, so I locked in C-Rob for, I think, five years at at 5.8 or something like that, when clearly he was worth more, but he agreed to it. So I was like, you know, I don't care if he gets hurt because he's worth it right now. It's worth it for me to be able to plan around that that spot in the lineup and know that that's always going to be there. Yeah, I think that also helps. We We haven't talked about like team construction or building your team, but that's another way of kind of it sounds counterintuitive, but by locking in long-term contracts, you are kind of giving yourself more flexibility in the near term because, okay, I don't have to worry about, Manhattan doesn't have to worry about a second baseman, 
right? You're not going to draft a second baseman until like 1992, right? So right. That, that means that that makes you automatically more competitive or in, you know, it, in the market for every other position. Right. And I'm willing to overpay in the draft position for the guy that I need, right? Like I'm going to, I'm going to be drafting three starters this year, you know, like I'll, I'll be drafting as many starters as I can um, with the hopes that, you know, and I'll be taking starters ahead of where other people have them ranked just because I have all my other position players sorted out for the next five years. Yeah. One other tip, my, my note says don't overpay for sentimental bozos. We, we have an old saying from, this goes back to micro league days, a sentimental bozo pick is what we used to call it. But I think another way of saying that is don't get hung up on a name because often players come into the league with ratings that, that don't really match up to what their true life performance was. I think Oral Hershiser is the, the most recent yeah. example of that. And on the flip side of that is don't be afraid to draft a guy that you've never heard of like my, like Matt Young, in my case, just because you've never heard of him, if he's got really, really good ratings. There was a guy, Dave Revering, a few years back. But I guess the main lesson is, is like pay more attention to the ratings than, than the names. Just be careful that you don't overpay out of sentimentality. When I do long-term contracts, the other thing I do is I, I do look at what other long-term contracts I have matched up with, that, with the guy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I've got like this year, I had one very large contract coming off the books in, in Dirk, or he was, he's coming from 13 million to six next year. So I was finally able to negotiate with like Eddie Murray into a long-term contract in Whitaker. And you'll see it around the league, very often a guy isn't getting paid the same amount all seven years of his long-term contract. So people do stack it differently. If they can afford it now, they pay up front. If they can afford it later because they know they've got some big ones coming off the books. They pay it later. So, you know, don't be afraid when you're negotiating, not to just do a level contract, but to go all over the map to match up to what you're doing. Um, and then sometimes you can sprinkle in an option and get some kind of break. You know, if you give them a player option, you typically get some sort of break. If you get it, give them a team option, if you're not sure of the guy gives you an out, so, you know, there's, there's many ways to structure the contract. That's a classic Lance move. Every, every single extension that Lance does is a variable contract. So on the contracts page, you'll notice um, like most of the contracts are in, uh, the numbers are in red, but the black numbers are ones that uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change in future years. So if you look at Chicago and you go past 1984, every single, almost every single one of his contracts is in black ink, meaning that it's going to change from year to year. That's mm-hmm. that's another great way to kind of lock in a guy for maybe maybe you're paying him a little bit less in the next couple of years, but uh, but you'll be on the hook for. Generally, they're, they're paid less in the early years and more in the future years. Although you could structure it any way you want. One of the main differences between our league and other leagues. So for the new guys, it's relevant to know. Obviously, we're, we're discussing structured rookie contracts. Two million for the first round, you know, one million plus for the second round, seven hundred fifty for the third round, three fifty for the fourth round, and later. So, so not only do you have these like huge expenses for development, but we also only have one level of minors. That's like that's radically different than than the vast majority of leagues. You know, there's not just three levels, but there might be like five or six levels, right? So, I think that adds to your you know, development risk. So that, that puts a greater, even greater premium on, on getting guys that are closer to fully cooked. 
So that's one issue. And then with respect to the draft picks, we did an episode. I think we did a whole episode actually on draft pick uh, valuation. And I don't have the analysis in front of me right now because I was like, I'm looking around and I can't find the binder. But I, I'm virtually certain that our analysis said that third round picks is the best war for, for dollar. Uh, first round picks are, are, are pretty good. Uh, fourth round is also good. And second round is the worst, um, you know, war, war per dollar. And of course, the first pick in each round has, has the highest value, right? Because you're getting the best value for the, uh, the new discounted contract level. Yeah, I, I remember that episode, and I think you were right. I don't remember the fourth round, but I think you were right. The third round somehow came out to be the best. <laughs> yeah, and- somehow. I mean, dude, it's because you can get starter caliber guys, right, or or contributing guys on I guess, 750. I mean, there's so many guys on 750 contracts that are <laughs> legitimately starting, you know, so they rack up some, some more there. I mean, that, that's always my big move is can you throw in a third rounder? That, that exactly. makes the trade so much better for me. And for most <laughs> exactly. GMs, it's like they're assuming that means, okay, here, a non-starter, great. You yeah, who cares? It. Right, right, exactly. I think that was a useful analysis that might be worth taking a, a closer look at as well, because I think it's when you did that, you were just looking, you just added up the war of each round and then divided it by, it was just pure average, right? Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so another way to do it might be to look at, like median, right? Or, or yeah, you know, of course. Look at yeah. different, different ways. Cause, cause one guy like uh, Craig Robinson yep, was, throws it off. was a fourth rounder, right? Yep. And he yep. has his career war is like several hundred right now. So that's exactly right. Yeah. Throw in like fourth round picks or something. And I was like, dude, I don't want a fourth round pick. Like I, I just, if you look <laughs> at the fourth round of recent years, it's like I don't want, I don't want the I don't even want these guys. That's why I said it was negative value because in most cases they are. In most cases, you're paying this guy three fifty. He's taking up a roster spot. I think the opposite again. All these strategies have flip sides. Washington's approach. Uh, Mark Waller. He he was a, he he's just been piling up fourth round picks because. And the way he called them was lottery tickets because you never know. Because mm-hmm. I think he knew he yeah. knew about the Craig you know, the Craig Robinson uh, origin story, fourth rounder, nobody wanted him and then he turned into the greatest player ever. So, and that could happen again, but what's the lesson of lottery tickets? Like, unless you're buying up the whole lottery, most of them are not worth the paper they're printed on. So again, it's, it comes down to a lot of the player valuation comes to what your risk tolerance is. And, you know, are you, are you, are you willing to like accumulate 20, guys who are never going to make the majors in the hopes that one of them turns into, you know, a perennial all-star. Like John Shelby. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> he hasn't arrived pick. yet, right? Yeah. Yeah. He hasn't arrived yet, but he's, he's coming. Yeah. But they're amazing. Yeah. But back to your thing, Tim, though. So the reason why I don't agree with that is because um, what I was trying to communicate earlier, you have to have 350 K slots anyway, right? You have to fill 50 slots anyway. So why don't I yeah. take four or five or yeah, you know yeah. four, fourth round picks every round and just constantly replenish my minors with with those oh, yeah, guys? Yeah. And so, okay, so so I have an answer to that. I know that I know that you, that was just a hypothetical. So here's here's a direct answer to that, and, and this is one reason I don't generally go for that is because, and this goes to a point that I think Sean made, uh, and also Charlie alluded to in the last um, uh, John Mayberry. 
the reason I don't, and this is also a reason that my, my that my that Phoenix has a bunch of geriatrics, right? Is is I would rather pick up a guy off the off the scrap heap in in the auction round of free agency who's proven he's not going to turn into a superstar because he's 32 years old, but he's going to be a solid contributor and he gives me insurance. He gives me a deep bench, all that kind of stuff. So that's been, that's always been my approach is that you're going to pay 350 for a guy. I'd rather have a guy who's say the best player in double a that I can call up and fill a specific slot. And I know that he's going to contribute now, whether it's as a starter in triple a or, as a bench guy. So that's, that's where I come from. And that's also where that's part of the, that's a piece of why I consider fourth round picks as negative value. Cause I've, in my mind, I can find, if I'm going to spend 350, I can find a better player out of free agency. I guess that's true if, if they're mutually exclusive. Right. But if, if you can do both, right. Like, and you can, I mean, in the old days when you had 50 to 55 players and you had to fit within that range, then slots were at a premium. Right. So maybe then you could say, okay, I don't want to, you know, clog up my minors with some guy who's, who's hopeless, you know, but Hey, we've removed that limitation and B again, it doesn't mean you can't try and do both, right. Like reserve some slots for, for the double a, you know, for, for the best guy in double a and reserve a few slots for, for lottery tickets, you know, or I might add, sorry, not to keep saying the same, but another thing you can do with fourth round guys maybe you can find a guy who's really good at, at something, right? Like maybe there's a guy in the draft who's like 10, 10, 10 on the bases. Well, that guy could be your designated pinch runner guy, right? Yeah, it might yeah. actually have some value, right? So, or, or he's like a really good defensive third baseman just to make up something. Well, I love to use defensive replacement guys. So that guy actually has potential, uh, you know, value. I might actually use that guy someday. So, so I don't know. I mean, again, to your point, I, it's like, you know, <laughs> these are all just options, right? That we're right, talking right. about, but um, but I just don't want to just take a dump on fourth round picks because yeah, there's, yeah. there's so much value. Well, th- actually, what you just said was uh, one of Sean's tips was to seek to seek role players, um, guys with certain qualities that can help address the specific need on your team. Um, and yeah, and often that's like maybe they might only be good at one thing, but uh, if they're young uh, and they're and they're really 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 good at one thing, there's always the chance they'll get a couple upgrades, and then it's suddenly they become a two a two tool or a three tool player, um, and they become very serviceable. Yeah, I, I was actually going to say the same thing Glenn was saying, and I, I I think expansion might even make that more valuable as the the rosters water down a little bit. Is you know getting these role players? I mean, this year I've experimented a lot with that with putting some guys on the roster that all they do is play defense. So they're my eighth, ninth inning replacements. I have a couple pitchers that could really only pitch against one side, lefty or righty, and I have them slotted as specialists. Um, so I, I wonder if the fourth round will gain a little bit more popularity you know, as there's more teams. So you just need more players that can fill certain slots and there'll be more role players where in the past, I think a lot of the championship teams, you know, one through eight were all stars. All five starters were pretty much serviceable, if not great. You know, three guys in the pen were great. So you, you weren't really carrying a guy that was in there just to pinch run, where I think that's starting to change a little bit. I mean, I know on my team, I'm definitely carrying a few players only to fill certain very specific roles because I, I, I can't get enough talent to put an all-star on the bench. Yeah, I think that... I'm really excited for expansion because it is going to be the guy with the with the deep bench or the guy who can 
uh, have uh, injury replacements ready to go, um, they're going to be the playoff team. That's that's a difference in two or three games per season. So, yeah, when when each of us have one or two of our best players removed from our roster, there's going to be a scramble in free agency, in trades, in all that stuff. I think it's just going to make everything more exciting for a while. We haven't talked at all about arbitration. Um, do we want to talk about kind of arbitration strategies or <laughs> Eric's strategy? <laughs> Eric's strategy is just buy it out. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, no, I, I, I rarely have guys go to arbitration. Me too. I, if they're good, if I want to keep them, I offer them a contract. If yeah. I don't, then I let them walk. Very few guys. I think the only time I, I truly use arbitration is a guy maybe had an off year, but I think he's better than that. And this way, maybe I get him for one more year where he's not super expensive. Um, then I may send him to arbitration. Otherwise, I don't use it very often. And I don't really use it on superstars at all. The reason for that is you can lock in a longer term contract for less money than what arbitration would be. Is that yeah, correct? it's less risk. I mean, I've got, I've gotten burned on arbitration many times uh, where uh, the average player comes back and it's a million dollars above your offer. And it's like, man, well, that just screws up my whole strategy. Yeah. Yeah. It's to me, for me, it's also the risk factor. I mean, I'm almost literally running every year with under a hundred K left. So I can't have a guy go to arbitration and ask for a million more than what I thought he was going to ask for. It's just then it literally means I got to trade somebody else because I'm over the cap. So I, I, I don't like the risk and financially, I don't think it's, it helps all that much. If it's a guy you want, just sign him. If it's a guy you don't want, let him walk. Yep. There's not that many in the middle. That's arbitration. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Tim, is there, in fairness, is, I was going to say, go ahead, go ahead, bro. You got something else. I mean, is there, is there any team that's heavily using arbitration? Yeah, Brooklyn. Don't pay Back that to Brooklyn. Too. Brooklyn, dude. Brooklyn. So, but they're the opposite of what you just described. Like his payroll is way under, well, I don't know about this year, but in general, he runs his payroll well under his cap, right? And then, like you said, all of his guys are, he can churn them every year or drop them every year. So, and he doesn't have that many, uh, he doesn't have that many long-term deals. He had Schmidt on a long-term deal for a long time. I don't know. He brought him back now. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm looking at the contracts page. So Brooklyn's got about 10 guys going to arbitration or arbitration eligible, I should say. Um, Cleveland's got quite a few. Denver's got quite a few. Well, th- th- those are just arbitration eligible. So some, a lot of those guys will actually be cut. But um, but uh, St. Louis, you've got St. Louis has 13, 13 or 14 guys that are, are, are eligible. Uh, right. And so what? I, so I will cut almost every one of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's the other reason why. So, so back to the Brooklyn thing, or in my case, right? It's like I, I've signed all these guys on one-year deals, but because of where they're at and they're – um, you know, major league experience level, they're all ar- arbitration eligible, but doesn't mean I'm going to keep them. I'll just kick them back into free agency because I don't want to pay 600 grand for, you know, my minor league catcher, right? So I'll kick them back into free agency and resign them again for 350 or 375 right. if exactly. I really want them. Yeah. So, so, I, so, yeah. So I have a lot of guys on arbitration and I just released them. So I, I have used arbitration in, in for guys, let's say, I don't want to lock him into a three-year deal, but I think he's decent and and he's going to cost way more to sign a one-year extension. Then in that case, the arbitration can end up being cheaper. 
Sometimes they won't even sign a one-year extension. So arbitration is a way of holding on to that player with just a nominal increase. But um, generally I only do it for like guys who are starters um, or, you know, top tier players rather than like role players. Oh, but this is also maybe a good point to mention major league service time, because this is another way of kind of manipulating your finances is if you keep an eye and you notice on the contracts pages, sometimes there's question marks like ARB question mark or FA question mark. And what that means is those are players who might cross the threshold this season. And again, the thresholds are three years of major league service time makes you arbitration eligible. And then nine years makes you eligible for free agency. So there are ways for, I think Charlie had, here's a good example, Alan Ashby uh, on Cleveland. um, I think he's like his backup catcher. He was like really close to um, triggering the three-year major league service time. So as a tip I gave Charlie, is like, look, if you send, if you send Alan Ashby down to like triple A, like the last two weeks of the season, then he's not going to reach the three years and he'll be an automatic renewal instead of ARB eligible. So that's another way you can kind of reduce your expenses. Any final thoughts, anything that we've left out that you want to pass on? Finances are complicated. Try to get talent first and you'll figure out the finances later. Yeah, that's good advice. So it's like, that's the reason that we're here is to try to win games and have fun. Like I, going back to, to what you said, I always try to get a sentimental guy on the roster because it reminds me like this is a game that we're all playing for fun <laughs> it doesn't really matter <laughs> so like it might as well like to see my little digital cal ripkin jr playing out there imagining him making all the plays it's pretty fun there you go brilliant summary actually so we're talking about all these financial rules but and, and managing the cap and and maximizing revenue but it's all in purpose of you know, helping you win and how you win or different strategies for, for winning. Are, those are various, right? If you just look at Detroit or Montreal or, even, or Brooklyn, even, you know, those are guys that have all had consistent success on low, you know, low caps and not low caps per se, but low spend. So it is possible to do it. And Washington guy, right? He has a, a philosophy and a process in place that he, believes he can win with a low with a low spend so um you know so there's more than one way to, to you know to get it done but but all these rules and all these tips that we're talking about right at the end of the day it's like in service of, in service of trying to trying to win games you know until next time here's to fake baseball Did me?